Open your Bibles up, if you'd be willing, to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Excited to share with you uh, tonight, out of this, out of this book, a uh, brand new study we're doing. Those of you who signed up, several of you did for the CD of the month, this will be uh, August study this month, so it's a little late in getting it out. We've tried to record this thing a couple times and haven't been able to do so at the camps. Uh, book of Revelation, uh, just a little bit of a background for those of you just joining us. The book of Revelation has three main sections to it, and that's important to know, especially if you're going to enter, in, in, enter into it and study it. Revelation is made up of an introduction, uh, which is given to seven churches in the province of Asia, or at least those churches in the province of Asia, and what's being introduced is the prophecy. Uh, chapter 1 makes up that introduction. Okay? And this introduction is given to the churches in the province of Asia. Seven of them are listed in chapters 2 and 3. Those two chapters make up the second section. What's actually being introduced is the prophecy itself, which begins in chapter 4 and extends down to chapter 22. That's what's being introduced. We, I, I have really found that the um, introduction is just extremely significant because he goes to in great detail into uh, what would seemingly be great pains to introduce to us what the prophecy is. And, of course, with all the uh, hype about Revelation and even probably those who take the, the prophecy way out of context and take it to mean something that it doesn't, uh, it's probably a telltale sign that some people skipped the introduction. So we've really given a, a great amount of time and study to this first chapter. Uh, we've taken the introduction, the first chapter, and I've tried to, just walking through it, we begin to see that there were basically four natural divisions in it. In other words, he kind of shifts from topic to topic four times in the first chapter. Uh, those divisions are these. I marked them all with a P. You may remember them. Verses 1 through 3 make up the prologue section. The prologue, that word prologue, in fact, if you have the NIV, right above verse 1, there's a little word there in italics. It reads prologue. It's a compound Greek word made up of the Greek words pro and logos. Are you with me? Okay, just making sure. Okay, it's made up of the Greek words pro and logos. Pro means before, logos means word. If you take those two words and you cram them together, it makes up prologue, a word before. Okay, so the first three verses basically give you a word before the actual prophecy itself. So before you ever get into it, he says, hey, this is what I'm talking about. I want to give you an opening statement. That's the first three verses, the prologue. Uh, the next P is verses 4 through 5A, and that's the person section. That's where our one God in three persons is introduced to us. Okay, uh, we know the persons as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not referred to that in these verses, but that's our God. That's the God that's speaking to these seven churches in the province of Asia. So you have the prologue and the persons. The praise section is verses 5b down through verse 8. Uh, it begins with, to him who loves us. And that's, again, the response of what God is doing in the lives of his people. And then the last section, which is where we're going to be at tonight, is verses 9 through the end of the chapter, and that's the Patmos section. And uh, that's where John tells us about the call to write down the gospel. Got all that? That's the tedious part, okay? And we've been dividing that, uh, dividing that up and going at it. Um, I've been really dealing with verses 9 down through verse 20, and it's all about John's, uh, the event when he was on the island of Patmos. Uh, he's there. Uh, the island of Patmos was a kind of like a, well, it was a Roman prison camp, 
but it, the, the way that a few scholars have, uh, have described it, and it's hard to know exactly what it was like, but they're suggesting that it was probably like a, um, a, a, a Nazi concentration camp. I mean, it was just brutal. I mean, the Romans were a brutal people. They invented ways to kill people. Uh, they invented ways of torture. Uh, they were just really into that whole thing. And so their camps, you, just, you didn't make it out of them alive, which is probably why uh, John was sent there as an alternative to being killed. Uh, so it, just, it was a brutal kind of a scene. John is on this island. God comes to him. Jesus comes to him and commissions him to write down this prophecy. I want to look with you tonight in this section at verses 10 and 11. Okay, verses 10 and 11, which has to do with the call. It has to do with the specific calling that's laid upon his life to write down this prophecy. It's the calling. And I want to read that for you. I'm reading the NIV. This is how it reads. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is the call that he has. John is called by Jesus to write down everything that he sees, to write down this prophecy and send it to these seven churches. Now, um, obviously, knowing that this is a calling, I really got into trying to understand the, the biblical forms of callings. I have a calling. Uh, I believe everyone has, uh, personally, I believe everyone has a calling. And of course, John has a calling in this passage. When you get into the scripture, and I didn't get this from a commentary, it's just kind of what I've gathered, so I'd be willing to uh, bend on this a little bit, and uh, it may change in the future. But what I'm finding, basically, is that there are three types of callings that you have uh, in the Bible, in scripture. There are three basic types of callings. The first type of calling is the calling that I would describe as a universal calling. It is the calling that everyone has. And, of course, that calling was expressed back in the praise section. And this is the thing that John testifies to and that he praises about in verses 5 and 6. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest. That is a universal thing. Each and every one of us in this room has been called to be a kingdom and priest. Period. You don't get out of it. It's a universal thing. And if you remember what kingdom is, okay, a kingdom is a place of his absolute rule and authority. That is a universal call. That means every teen, every adult, every minister in this place is called to be a place of his absolute rule and authority. That's what you're called to. You can't opt out of that. Okay? Whether you uh, respond to Jesus and become a Christian or whether you do not, whether you go to a Nazarene church or a Baptist church or whatever, I, I really believe that one day we're all going to stand before God and we're going to be held accountable to that calling. Am I a place of his absolute rule and authority? The second is, I'm called to be a priest. Now, uh, in fact, a couple of us were talking about this this week. Those of you who went out to uh, eat with us, and actually, we went out to eat with you. <laughs> People took us out to eat. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But uh, we talked about different kinds of callings, and... Uh, I always enjoy hearing about the lifestyles of people, whether you're a teacher. And you guys have got a ton of teachers here. Way too many math teachers. No offense. But uh, I met three this week. You need some English teachers around in here. Anyway, but everybody has a calling. And those of you who, who I talked about your, what you're doing in school and as a teacher, that's a calling. Okay? You have a calling upon your life. 
And I think that uh, that has to do with the priesthood kind of a deal. That each and every one of us is called to a parish. My parish is, is those that are, it would be the first one would be my family. The second would be the churches that I preach at. The third would be at the gyms that I lift at. The fourth would be the McDonald's drive throughs that I visit. I mean, I am literally called to be included in the day in and day out ministry of the kingdom. Okay? Now, that's all the details that we looked at in verses 5 and 6 uh, last Thursday night if you were with us. Okay? That's a universal thing. Each and every one of us are called to be kingdom and priest, period. Universal. Okay? Now, that's one kind of calling, universal calling. The next level of calling, and this is just what I'm describing it as, would be an uncommon. You have a unique or you have a universal calling, and then you have what I would call as an uncommon calling. It's not everybody. Uh, I think those are given, in fact, if you have your Bible, and if you want to pull this up, you can do so on the screen, uh, Ben. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this language is really, really significant. John uses it in several places. Talking about the work of the Spirit in a person's life. And of course, right, if you have the NIV translation, right above verse 12, the title of it is One Body, Many Parts. Okay? One Body, Many Parts. And he goes through and he talks about all the details of the different kinds of callings. And uh, he says, for instance, down in verse uh, 14, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, so th- there are feet, okay? There are people who are called to be a, a th- feet, called to be feet. <laughs> what a calling. Uh, the foot should not say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong in the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, so there's ears, Okay? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, and there's also eyes, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And as you go through and look at the details, and you this is old material, you've studied that, I'm sure, before, but, or at least heard it before, that there are different parts in the body. Some are called to be pastors, some were called to be apostles, some were called to be evangelists, some were called to be pastors. See, each of us, so there's a, there's a universal calling in terms of being a Christian, being a kingdom and a priest, and then there's the uncommon calling, which are individual areas of ministry. Not everybody's called to be a math teacher. Amen. Not everybody's called to be an evangelist. Not everybody's called to be a construction worker. And those are specific areas of calling. You follow me on that? That's basically how we're, what I'm finding in the scriptures. There's a universal calling and then there's an uncommon calling. Now, what we're dealing with, why I'm telling you this, is what we're dealing with in this passage, John has what I would describe or uh, not what I would describe, as he describes it in the passage we're going to look at tonight, he seems to be describing a unique calling. In fact, I would propose to you it is a calling that even none of the other disciples had. This is completely unique. And you would say, what do you mean by a unique calling? Well, a unique calling would be that of Jesus. There's only one Jesus. Okay? There's only one that could come and die on a cross. There's not two of those. There's just one. That is a unique calling. There's a calling as a prophet, okay? There are not five or six different kinds of prophets. There is one kind of prophet. That is a unique calling. In fact, that's not as unique as the calling of Jesus, okay? But that is a unique calling. And I'm proposing to you that John has the call 
of a prophet. Everything in the passage, and this has been a really, really significant study uh, as I've been walking through this, but everything in the passage just screams uniqueness. This is brand new. He's never experienced anything like this before. He didn't have this as a disciple. See, being called as an apostle, that was really significant. There were 12 of them, okay? 13 if you count Paul, which we do. So there were like, you know, significant apostles. You and I are not called to be apostles. They were, okay? That's unique. But this is even more unique than that. And you would say, what do you mean by unique? I want to walk you through some of the circumstances. Look with me at the beginning of verse 10. And just, I want you to listen to some of the language. And you're probably getting used to my preaching by this time. But when I begin to study a passage, I don't, I don't believe preaching is coming uh, with a preconceived notion, an idea. In other words, hey, I got something I want to tell James about, and he needs to hear it. His mom told me. And so I'm going to come in the scripture, and I'm going to find something to back it up to tell him. See, that's not, I don't think that's preaching. What preaching is, is you're coming into the passage and you're finding out what it has to say and you communicate it to the people. That way, if you get mad, it's not me, it's the Bible. Get you out of all kinds of trouble too, so it's really neat. But I've been finding some really significant language in verses 10 and 11 about this calling that he has. I want to, I want to walk you through some of it. He begins by saying, and I already read this to you, so you remember it, but he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Okay, first opening statement. He said, on the Lord's day. Now, the first thing that we have to wrestle with is, what does he mean by saying, on the Lord's day? Now, if we would say, someone said the Sabbath. That's the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, But see, that's our day. When we talk about the Lord's day, you and I know what day the Sabbath is. It's on a Sunday. Their Sabbath, actually, in their day, most scholars suggest, was not on Sunday, but was on Saturday. Okay? So is he even talking about the same kind of Sabbath that our Sabbath is? Now, in the middle of the second century, they started, actually, they reserved one day of the week as the Lord's Day, and there's specifics on why they chose that day, and it was the Lord's Day. But is, it, is that exactly what John is talking about? It's, it's difficult to know. Was he talking about like it's, it's the day of Sabbath? Was it the day of worship? It's really difficult to know. Because there's another alternative. He might be talking about a Sabbath, which they probably had at this point in tradition, because you've got about probably 70 years have passed after the death of Jesus. That's a long time. 70 years have passed after the death of Jesus. So they probably had... It's, 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 it's probable that they had a Lord's Day established in the church at this, at this point. But there's another alternative. The other alternative is if you, you read in the, uh, in the Bible, especially if you've read the Old Testament, you might have come across a phrase called the Day of the Lord. Okay? The Day of the Lord. And it's also in the New Testament, but it's really into the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, they talk about the Day of the Lord. And what the Day of the Lord is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eschatological day. And you would say, what's eschatological mean? It has to do with the end times. It is a specific day in which God is bringing about a significant event, which has to do with the end times. And some people say that's what he's talking about. And it it almost fits by the characteristics, but the word there, uh, Lord, the Lord's day, that word Lord is not used in the Old Testament Septuagint, Okay, it's not used in the New Testament or any of the church fathers. That word is not used in the day of the Lord. It's another word for Lord. 
So what I'm trying to tell you, if that confuses you all, the, the grammar doesn't match up. So it's probably not that. So you would say, well, what is he trying to say here when he said it was on the Lord's Day? Whether it was a Sabbath, whether he's trying to mark out some eschatological event, what he is saying, it's a unique day. When he looks back at this day, and he probably wrote this after he got off the island of Patmos, he was saying it was on a significant day. It was on a specific day. This was a unique day among the other days of the week. Does that make sense? It was on the Lord's Day. It was on a Sabbath. It was a specific day, and it's marked. And then he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Now, when you read throughout the New Testament, you and I realize that we have a calling uh, as Christians uh, to live for Jesus. But that all starts with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our life. Um, We know that the, the characteristics of the Christian life are the characteristics of the Holy Spirit living in us. Okay, we talk about that uh, with language like the fruit of the Spirit. How many know what the fruit of the Spirit is? How many of them are there? Starts with N, ends with Ein. Nine, that's right. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit, they're nine. Okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and that's a fruit of the Spirit, which means that is a product, very good, that's the product of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of trying hard, it's not the fruit of discipline. The Christian life is the fruit of him reproducing who he is through our lives. So the Christian life is the fruit of who he is. Okay? So as Christians, we live in the Spirit. I operate in the Spirit. And um, I talked to you about that on Sunday, as a matter of fact. That, um, that shouldn't... My operating and dwelling and resting in Jesus, living in the resource of the Spirit, that shouldn't be any different on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday than it is on Sunday. It shouldn't be any different down at the gym than it is here. Operating and dwelling and living in the Spirit. Now, why I bring that up is because when you read this passage, what it sounds like is John says, hey, it was on the Lord's day and I was in the Spirit. I was resting in the Spirit. Hey, I was focused, man. I was filled. I was living the way I was supposed to live. That's not at all what he is saying. It's not at all what he's saying. There are two words that you can translate was that are used in our Bible. They two different words. One can be the term Amy, and one can be the term Genomai. Okay? Amy and Genomai. Genomai is more fun to say. Amy and Genomai. Yeah, they both mean a little bit different. And these two words, I want to give you an illustration of these. Turn back with me, if you'd be willing. I'm going to have you use your Bibles a little bit tonight. Back to the book of John, chapter 1. These two words are used there. Okay? Amy and Genomai. When you read this, okay, when you read this, when, when you read on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, what you think you're reading is the Greek word Amy, which is a verb of being. John says, I was in the spirit. That word Amy is used in verses one down through verse four to describe Jesus. Listen to what it says. Verse, verse one, chapter one of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. Okay, that's describing Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. That means he was not created. He was there. In the beginning, Jesus was there. 
Okay? Now, I, I tell you that because that's probably what most people think of when they're, when they're reading the Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when John says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. In other words, hey, it was the Lord's day, and I was focused, I was there, I was, I was, I was indwelt by the Spirit, I was being the way I'm supposed to be, living the life I'm supposed to live, I was in the Spirit. I'm going to propose to you that that's not exactly what he's saying, because it's not, he does not use the word ami. The Greek word he uses is the Greek word genomai. And the Greek word genomai is used in verse 6. And this will all make sense in a second if it doesn't make sense now. Verse 6 reads, There came a man who was John. In fact, that word is actually translated, came into being a man that was John. And that is, the, the writing is really specific there. It's a great contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus was, John came into being. Jesus was not created. Jesus has always been. He is God. He was begotten of the Father and born of a woman, but he always was. Jesus was not created. You guys know that, right? Jesus was not created. He was. John came into being. The word that's used in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when John says, on the Lord's day, I was, is actually not the word was, it's the word came into being. And you would say, well, why does the, tra- the NIV translation read was? Well, that's the question I would like to ask the NIV translators. Because it's not a very good translation. In fact, I didn't look at this. Oh, I did look at this. There's a number of other translations that actually translate this properly. When 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 the NIV translates it, on the Lord day I was in the spirit, the good news translation translates it like this. On the Lord's day, the spirit took control of me took control of me. In other words, it was something that happened at that time. It wasn't like he was just resting in the spirit on the Lord's day, living for Jesus, walking along, normal, average, everyday thing. On the Lord's day, something unique happened. And by the way, and this was so significant, when you look through John's writings, anybody know how many writings John has, uh, writings John has in our New Testament? Five. The Gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. Five. In all of his writings... Wherever John is mentioned in any other writing, even those apart from the ones he wrote, he never describes this kind of event happening to him. This is unique. It's brand new. He's never experienced this before. This is a unique kind of a circumstance. The Good News Translation translates it, On the Lord's day, the Spirit took control of me. The New Testament, an expanded translation, translates it like this. On the Lord's day, I entered into a different sphere of the Spirit. Brand new. They'd never had this before. I, entered it, I went a whole nother level, you might say. Uh, the 1890 Darby Bible. Bet you wish you had that one, huh? A little evangelistic humor. Uh, the 1890 Darby Bible reads, On the Lord's Day, and this is probably the best one, On the Lord's Day, I became in the Spirit. Now you would say, why are you telling me all of this? Because one, the picture that he's painting here The picture that's being painted here, that there was a unique day when he looks back and writes this, he's saying, hey, I'm telling you, I was on a specific day. It was a a unique day from all the other days uh, of that week or even all the other days while I was on the island of Patmos. It was this unique day and something unique happened to me. On the Lord's day, I became in the spirit. Something absolutely significant and different than it's ever happened to me before happened. Now, When you go through, and why we're calling this a unique calling, 
uh, John has the calling of a prophet. If you were to ever go back um, and look at the callings of the prophets, um, they're really unique from anything we experience today. I have, people are going to argue with me about this. Probably none of you in other denominations. They, they'll just come up to me after the service and, and tell me they don't agree with me. I don't believe we have prophets today like we had then. I just personally don't believe that. I, I believe it was a, a specific time and an hour uh, among the people of God that God spoke in a unique way in the, the day of the prophets. I have, I've had people, I've had four or five times people approach me in my life and say, I'm a prophet, and I have a word of the Lord for you. And hey, what do you do with that? They always come up to me and say, I'm a prophet. And I'm like, well, I'm Jeremiah. Nice to meet you. Shake their hand, you know. And I've had people tell me all kinds of stuff. I, had, I was in a Nazarene church in northern Indiana, and this 17-year-old kid comes up to me after the service. He was from a different church, and he walks up to me, and he says, I'm a prophet, and God wants me to tell you something. And it was like two minutes before I spoke. I mean, I was literally standing up to preach. And they were dismissing the kids. And he runs up to me. And he goes, I have a word of the Lord for you. I have to give it to you. I'm like, can it wait? <laughs> He's like, no, right now. And he goes, I kid you not, he goes, you're supposed to preach out of the Gospel of John. Which I'd been in the Gospel of John all week. And it's the only sermons that I had was out of the Gospel of John. It's all I've ever preached of. So I was like, good thing. <laughs> I'm preaching out of John. It's all I've got. Now, was that guy a prophet? Well... I preached out of the Gospel of John. See, that's, I'm not talking about that prophet. What I'm talking about in terms of the prophets, when you go back, and I, you don't have to turn here, but when you go back, I marked a couple of these, and you look at the calling of the prophets and how they describe, they describe, this is really neat, they describe what happened to them in a similar way to what happened to John. And Ben, if you can keep up with me on this, and I bet you you can because you're Ben. But uh, John describes what happened to him similar to the way that uh, the prophets describe what happened to them. The prophets them, John to him. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 2. And this is right after the, the being, seeing this angel figure right in front of him. Verse 2 says, As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. This happened several times to Ezekiel. You go over a couple, uh, uh, well, one chapter in chapter 3. It happens again in verse 12. The Spirit lifted me up. Verse 14. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away. Can't keep up, can you, Ben? Verse 24. The Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that, was, that faces eat. In other words, literally, the Spirit lifted Ezekiel up in some type of a vision trance thing and, and, and took him to a different place and showed him this gate. So it talks about that in chapter 11. The last one I'll give you is in chapter 43, verse 5. Chapter 43, verse 5. The Spirit lifted me and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So what he's describing is a, is a unique kind of circumstance that not everybody has. Not everybody has this kind of thing happening to them. And you would say, well, how does that compare to John? Well, look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
After this, I looked, and there before me was standing an open door in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I became in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So he's literally carried up into the heavens. See, this is not, I want to, if you could get a hold of this, this is so significant. The lengths, this is so significant, the lengths that God is going to in order to get this message across is something, and I hesitate to say this, it's something that we don't even have record of Jesus experiencing. There's no record of anyone else save Paul in the New Testament that experiences anything like this. Paul experienced it a few times. But really not to the degree of this. And also, Paul did not get such a lengthy... This is a prophet's kind of a deal. John had what we would call as an out-of-body experience. It's absolutely unique. It was on the Lord's day, and he became in the Spirit and literally was transported up and saw things. Okay? So the circumstances that we're finding in verse 10... Are you with me on this? They were completely unique. John was not just sitting on Sunday. He was in the spirit, feeling warm fuzzies. And it was really good. The music was hot. And uh, hey, God was moving. And wow, he had to drink some coffee. And he started seeing things. That's not what we're talking about here. There was a movement of the spirit upon his life that he had never experienced before. It was unique. So you have unique circumstances. Okay? Now I want to look with you at the calling. Uh, the calling comes, and it's, it's really diff- a really kind of different language, it comes through the voice of a trumpet. Now, Jesus doesn't normally have, in the book of Revelation, a voice like a trumpet. Normally, his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. For instance, if you look over with me in the middle of the same uh, chapter, uh, in the same section, if you go down with me at verse uh, 15... Listen to how Jesus is described. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And the prophets of old, when God spoke, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. But in verse uh, uh, 10 and 11, his voice was like a trumpet. So what's the significance? Why would he say his voice is like a trumpet? If you go through the Old Testament... When God speaks to his people, it was oftentimes announced with trumpets. It was announced with trumpets. So trumpets announce a speaking of God, a declaration that is unique, that is extremely significant. In fact, you trace down uh, even the modern day, uh, and I wouldn't go as far as say modern, but during the times of Jesus, they had several times throughout the, uh, uh, the year, they even had a festival of trumpets by which trumpets would be sounded and then the word of the Lord would be read. Okay? So trumpets signify a specific type of speaking of God. And I had a bunch of illustrations of that that I was going to read for you. Uh, you can go back um, in Exodus chapters 16 through 19. Um, excuse me, chapter 19, verses 16 through 20, when um, the law, when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, um, God is moving with fire upon the mountain, and all the people of Israel hear trumpets. In fact, the author in Hebrews goes, and he reiterates all that, that they heard trumpets, the sounding of trumpets. No one's sounding trumpets, but God was announcing that he was about to do something significant. Now, you have that in Revelation. It's absolutely unique. The circumstances in which he's in, what the Spirit does in his life, everything is being announced to him by trumpets. And you have trumpets given throughout the book of Revelation. Now, cut to the chase here. 
What, what is so significant about all of this? Why all the trumpets? <laughs> Why this moving of the Spirit and yanking him up on all the visions and those kinds of things? Because the significance of what is given to us, are you with me? The significance of what is given to us in the book of Revelation is absolutely so, so significant. It's absolutely so important. With bells and whistles, God does not want us to miss this. In fact, this is the only book, hear this, this is the only book in the entire Bible that ends with this statement. I warn everyone. I know you've probably read this, chapter 22, verse 18. Some people have, have claimed this for the whole Bible. It's not. It's just for the book of Revelation. John writes in chapter 22, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. See, this is, hear me on, this is no joke. You don't, you don't mess with this. This is significant. See, there's, I, I can't find, when I begin to study this passage, which is with fear and trembling, we was going to look at this Sunday night, and then I read that passage, and I thought, well, I better wait till Wednesday. Man, I don't, I don't get this wrong. That's, there's a lot writing on this. Because this, really this is really important. Significant circumstances, significant day, spirit moved, you've got trumpets. John falls flat on his face. He's carried up into the holy... And he has this message. And this message is absolutely so protected that if you and I would even twist it a little bit, we're in deep trouble. And one other small thing, if you were to go through, and I'll do it for you, but if you were to go through and look at how serious this message is to the churches, listen to what Jesus says to the churches. I, just give us, I want to give us a couple examples of this. To each church, he says stuff like this. To the church in Ephesus, he says... I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, what he says to the church in Ephesus, this message is so significant. If you don't get your act together and embrace it, I'm going to come and remove your church building from its place. I'm going to come and take your lampstand and blow it out. That's how significant the message is. If you're going to deviate from this thing, you're out. That's what he says to the church in Ephesus. If you go to the next church, which is Smyrna, which is in... Oh, I skipped Smyrna. Pergamum, verses verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you. And listen to this language Jesus uses. I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know what the word fight is? <laughs> I hesitate to say this because you like me. I don't want you to not like me. But the word fight draws the connotation of what you would watch on the UFC. Okay, I didn't think you'd watch UFC. Okay, but you, some of you go, oh, that's just so, that's this word. Yeah, Jesus is MMA. He's going to show up with the gloves on and the elbows. It's going to be brutal. That's how significant the message is. Jesus says, if you draw back from the message, hey, get in the octagon. Except he's bringing a sword. Yeah, I didn't think you'd like it. Anyway, uh, verse 22, to Thyatira, 
He says, so this woman in this church in Thyatira, you've probably read this as well, but she's misleading the whole church into sexual morality and idol worship. She's falling back from the message. Listen to what Jesus says he's going to do to her. Verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. (laughs) <laughs> that's no joke isn't this exciting wow. chapter 3 verse 3 give you just a couple more just for fun remember therefore what you have received and heard obey it and repent if you do not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at the time in which I am coming verse 9 to the church at Philadelphia I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews though they are not but are liars I will make them come fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you And then the last one, verses 15 through 19, uh, it's about the whole lukewarm. He says that they are blind and naked. What's the significance of verses 10 and 11? You have this calling placed upon John's life. He is waving flags. I believe he is trying to communicate not only to the seven churches, but to those who read the message. He says, listen, folks, this this is not casual. What I'm telling you, what happened to me, the circumstances, what I went through, he gives a warning at the end. Don't don't miss this. Don't miss up this calling. This is absolutely significant. Don't miss the message. He tells, he has specific instruction and warnings to each of the seven churches. Don't draw back from this message or we're in trouble. And you would say, well, what's the message? Jesus. He's the message. Jesus himself is the message. You want to know the kind of lifestyle that we're called to live? He's the lifestyle. You want to know the kind of feelings that you're to have? He, he, he has those feelings. In other words, we are to respond to God and say, well, whatever was going on in the life of Jesus, let that go on inside of me. I want to feel the way that he feels. I want to see the way that he sees. I want to hear the way that he hears. I want to laugh at the jokes that he laughs at. I want to be as narrow on this subject as Jesus is on this subject. I want to be as driven as he is driven. I want, to, I want to live in the kingdom with that kind of perspective that Jesus himself had. I want to walk on the cutting edge of what God is doing in the kingdom. I want to be kingdom-minded. And this is not, you know, super Christianity. This is ordinary, average, every day, don't get into heaven without it Christianity. That's the seriousness of this. That Jesus is the example of what God intended Adam to look like. In fact, Paul calls him the second Adam. These are those who are going to make it in the kingdom. The first Adam blew it. Jesus, sent, Jesus came as the second one and demonstrated what's to go on inside of your life and my life. And if I could just say it, uh, I appreciate you enduring all this, teens, but I do, I do teen camps during the summer. And one of the things we're consistently seeing with your age group, and I saw it with my own age group, is that there's a variety of definitions for being a Christian. There's a variety of definitions of what it means. And they extend from anywhere from you have to wear these kind of clothes and have this kind of a Bible and have your hair on this kind of a way and no makeup and you have to, you know, and just you have that kind of definition. They range from that kind of narrowness all the way over to whatever you believe is what you believe, whatever I believe whatever is whatever I believe. And as long as you love God, whatever that means you're in. What I'm finding in these days regarding this 
is the message of the gospel is Christ in you. The message of the gospel is Jesus himself, that I am to look like him. That I'm to be molded like he's to be, that, like I'm to be molded into his likeness. Do you, do you have that? I believe that's so serious that the message of the gospel that's laid on guys like me, Paul tells Timothy that not everyone should presume to be preachers because they're going to be judged more strictly. Because I believe the guy who stands up in the pulpit and peddles the gospel is going to be in deep trouble. Going to be in deep trouble. What a call. It's a call of the kingdom. And it's a serious deal.